lessons from going broke. So the one of the, as anything can happen, and income is temporary. Anything. So the when 2020 hit, for, for, foreclosure moratorium happened again. At that time, I owned four or five different companies, but my foreclosure software company that was making fifty or sixty thousand dollars a month went to zero. My company where I was buying foreclosures on the courthouse steps and flipping them went to zero. So two of my companies, when COVID hit, went from lot, you know, making $100,000 a month to nothing, right? What's up, everyone? And welcome to the first live episode of the Action Academy podcast. This is going to be a very special bonus episode. What we're doing is we're taking the keynote speakers that I flew out to Costa Rica for 45 members of the Action Academy. Uh, we were all out there for four days, and the keynote speakers were amazing. And I spent a couple thousand dollars on an AV team at the last minute to film everything, to record. And guys, it turned out amazing. So normally when it comes to masterminds, keynotes, all this stuff, uh, nobody ever posts the keynotes, right? Because that's the main thing that you keep to the chest where you market it as all the value and exclusivity and all this stuff. I don't agree with that. I think information should be free and implementation and the networking is what you pay for. So the way that I see it is if I share the message and the speeches from these keynote speakers to all of you guys, it helps them and it helps y'all and it impacts more people at scale. So today's episode is one of four keynote speeches that we're going to be sharing on the Action Academy. As you guys can tell, it is a bit longer than a traditional episode. I would split it up over a couple of listening sessions, maybe a couple of days for you to really soak it in and to take everything out of it. Because this keynote today is one of the main ones that we had, which was my buddy, Aaron Amuchastegui, who has over 850 single family rentals. And he's the host of the Real Estate Rockstars podcast. He goes all into his life story about how he made all of his money, made millions, lost it all, made millions, lost it all again, and then built it back even stronger than before. So he has so much perspective and he has gone through so many struggles in his life. Stick around for about the hour mark. At the hour mark, every single person in the room was uh, pouring tears. Like we were all crying. Aaron's wife was in the corner and she was crying. And I went over and gave her a hug as we were going through this. So it's an emotional roller coaster. And it's a fantastic episode that you need to listen to all the way through, even if it takes a couple of tries to get all the way through it. Now, please remember that this is keynote style. It's not podcast style. So I'm not asking him questions. It's just Aaron going off and sharing his presentation and his slides. So if you guys want to see the video of this, you can go on the Action Academy YouTube channel, which I'll put in the show description, and check out the audio so you can see the slides and the presentation. The keynote speech begins at about the five-minute mark before it is us talking across the Action Academy and all the people that are there sharing some gratitude, some testimonials that we just shared organically as we were going through this. So that's the first five minutes. If you want to skip that and you're just super in a rush today, you can go about five, six minutes deep and then that's when Aaron begins. And lastly, if you really enjoy today's episode and you love hearing from Aaron, you love hearing from all the different people in the Action Academy that you hear throughout this video and you want to be at the next one, sitting there in the freaking mansion in Costa Rica on the beach with the sun setting in the background as we're filming this, everyone about to go to the bar afterwards and mix, mingle, interact, start businesses together. If you want to be at the next event, and if you want to be a part of this family, of this tribe, go in the show description and book a call. It's going to be directly with me, not with the team. It's going to be with me. So without any further ado, let's get to it. Action Academy in Costa Rica Keynote Series 1. Love you, everyone. What is this? Good morning. How are you? I'm too bad. I'm here. Hi. I can sleep loudly. I don't need a microphone, but I'm about to get on so on. 
All right, uh, before we get started, what we are going to do, obviously, our guest today needs no introduction, but I'm going to intro him. The first thing I want to do before we get going is share five gratitudes, five takeaways from yesterday. You can shout out a win, a realization, a specific conversation you had with somebody. Raise the hands. Who wants to do five gratitudes? Who wants to lead us off? Not all at once. Hayden, I was waiting for you. <laughs> I'll just start with being grateful to literally just be just sitting in this chair. This is very surreal for me being where I am right now, being around people like you guys, having this opportunity. So grateful to just be here because by all standards, I should be in dorm room like crying myself to sleep. Thankful for you guys. All right. I want to hear from Team Renan real quick. Janet, Bella. Okay. I will shout out Joe because I think that it's a very scary place to be. I don't know. I guess we can all maybe resonate with this, but a scary leap of faith to jump from where we are today to where we want to go and being able to just visualize what it could possibly turn into is something that was very helpful for our crew last night so much so that we stayed up until 2 a.m. talking about what that would look like. So that would be my gratitude moment right now. All right. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think sitting outside last night with the sun setting and Joe's presentation behind, I was like, can't really get a whole lot better than this. So I think that was like just a big moment for me of like, I we're going to have a lot of these in our future. I just want to say I'm grateful for all the uh, new relationships I've made this week. They've uh, definitely going to change my life. And it's just been awesome. I'm just floored by the the generosity and authenticity of everyone in this room. People are very much here to help each other form genuine relationships, give give value to each other and uh, and really just support each other. It's it's incredible. Woo. Similar, just thankful for the ability to be sincere and genuine with everyone. I think that's so easy when you're in a room of like-minded people where at home it feels like you can't really show all your true colors because people just don't get it. It's been awesome. Perfect. All right. So remember, when you're leaving this, today we're going to have an awesome time. We're going to uh, go with Aaron. We're going to have Renan. We're going to have the boat. But keep that one intention in mind because when we finish this, we want to make sure that you're actually taking action on it because I will guarantee you this. Every single time you will go a month, two months, three months, and then the buzz will wear off. And then you'll start to feel hungover because you're going to be back in your job. So what relationships, what accountability, what one or two things are you going to do to make sure that maintains? Today, we have my good buddy, Aaron Amutrasegui, that decided to be friends with me for some reason, and his wife, because she's a baller, and I wanted to bring her out because I love her. And so I just was like, let's just bring the entire family here. For me, Aaron has been someone that I've looked up to for a long time, and it's been really cool, man, because the first time I met him, I had listened to him on podcasts. I talked to him about Kalina. We went and played volleyball with David Osborne, and I was just like, oh my God, like these people are so amazing. I don't know why they're hanging out with me. And now here we are, fast forward, I live down the street from y'all. I hang out with y'all <laughs> just about every single week. We go to the clubs, drink a bunch of agua, Topo Chico's, man. And now they pour into me. And now it's been really cool for me to be able to just be like, hey guys, you want me to book you a first class flight to Costa Rica and come chill? And so it's really cool full circle moment for me. Aaron is freaking baller in every single regard. And now I'm very honored to introduce him to all of you. Aaron Muchasegi. Oh. Thanks for the awesome intro. The uh, yeah, It's been fun getting to meet you guys and getting to see you guys when we're here. Brian's little story, you know, there's a story that somebody told me once um, at an event that uh, a speaker 
And he started a story with, you'll meet people at different places, like um, people you look up to, people you've been watching from podcasts, famous people, something where you have these moments and you get a moment to say hi. And sometimes this thing says, if you're ever in Austin, right, reach out. If you're ever in Austin. And so I've had that happen with a lot of people I met at different times. Hey, if you're ever in New York, if you're ever in Las Vegas. And, the, and a lot of times what people do is they go, cool, if I'm ever there, I'll do that. And they put that back away. But if you've got like mentors and people you want to meet and people whose life you want to be a part of, and they leave that opening, I'm telling you what you need to do is you need to book a trip to Austin and book a trip to New York. And, the, and you don't have to say, I'm coming to see you. But you can say, hey, I, I have a trip. I'm scheduled to go out to New York. I'm going to be there these days. But you mentioned meeting up. Are any of these times available? Because what you'll find is, is people like when effort happens. So a lot of people will send you something and give you a chance to test you. Do you want to be in my world or not? And they throw out these little tests. And, the, and you can either take the test or not. And you can either follow through with it or not. So remember, if anybody ever says that to you, hey, if you're ever in Austin, look me up. Don't wait. Schedule a trip. Be intentional about it and see what happens. The first time, yeah, we were playing volleyball in a group. There's a big group of people. And Brian said, I, I hit the ball or something. And Brian just said something about, oh, yeah, Aaron and cleanliness and the five-hour school week. I hadn't met Brian from anywhere. And then he started naming off a whole bunch of things about me oh, your podcast about this. Oh, your book about this. Oh, you were doing this. And so that intrigued me. So that created some other conversations. And then a little bit later, he had expressed, he had expressed, maybe I was like making a post on Instagram. Like, hey, I'm, I'm going to a Spurs game. And he had expressed interest like, oh, it's my dream to get to see it sit courtside at a Spurs game. And so he said, hey, here's one of my dreams. Here's one of my bucket lists. Just replied on Instagram. And I want to say maybe four or five months later, he happened to be in Austin on a night that I was going to a Spurs game. He was actually hosting a little mastermind at the time. And I said, hey, you want to go to the Spurs game with me tonight? Why? Because he expressed interest at a different event. He happened to be in town. I I knew that was one of his dreams. Now, at the time, I was trying to figure out if I was going to be able to hire him to take over my podcast. So I had some ulterior motives in that. But he said, yes. And he he, he came out. And I think that was the moment that then Brian got home and his boss said, you can't be like courtside in San Antonio if you're working here. (laughs) And he quit his job. That was the moment he went back and quit his job. So there's these life experiences that happen, but don't be afraid to reach out to people. Don't be afraid to see what happens because yeah, like we've we've built a friendship and there's going to be a lot of people in your world that you'll be, you guys will be able to do the same thing. Who has heard my origin story before? Cool. So not everybody. So that's good. Maybe 10, 15%. So then I will go into that a little bit on, on how I got here. My journey, I think there's going to be some of my journey that you should learn from what to do and some of what not to do, because I've done this journey a few different ways. So the, when I started up, so the, there's my family. So my wife, Kalina, who some of you guys have got to meet in the last couple of days, my oldest daughter, Madeline, she's 16. Charlotte's now 14. Izzy's 13. And Brax is seven. And that is a wild picture. One of the questions that you guys first proposed, like when they said, who wants to hear from Aaron is how do you balance it all? And I'm going to get into that a little bit later, but it's not, it's not necessarily a happy answer because it's really hard to balance it all as we're growing. But one of the things to try to remember as you're building or as you're planning is try to go back and refocus on your why. And lately I've even struggled with my why. So it's really important that every presentation I do, I try to make this the first slide because I need to remind myself of this often. And I probably don't remind myself of it enough. So if you have a why, if you have a a reason you're doing something, it should be the backdrop on your screen. 
I should have taken a picture of what it's like on my computer screen at home. It's my vision board, but the center of the vision board is the family stuff. And as you're, but as you're growing businesses, it's really hard to go back to that balance. So that is the reason it's always my first slide because it's to remind me more than everybody else that this is why I wanted to do all of it when I first got started. So we're gonna talk about my wealth journey, some market predictions, the how I went from buying one home to thousands. I'll even show you guys my first house on there. How I track them then versus now maybe how to figure out how much to pay for a property. As we talk about this, we're gonna, we'll, we can adjust a little bit along the way based on what you guys wanna hear because we'll talk a little bit about goals and visions and how I look at goals slightly different than maybe other people do and how I would challenge you guys to adjust as you're leaving here with your goals. And again, Brian's, what he reflected on is like when you're going home, all you guys are taking lots of notes. You've got lots of things. Most of the time when we leave, we don't go back and look at those notes. And I'm guilty of that too, but what I really try to do on the flight home is come up with the list of what's the bullet points of the trip. And then when I get back, I try to share it with my spouse or my team or people that work for me. I'm like, here's what I want to try to go do because we will leave excited. And if we can make the people around us excited too, there's a better chance that some of that is gonna come to fruition. All right, so the so a little bit about me. So I host a, a podcast called the Real Estate Rockstars Podcast. I've recently had a guest host take over that. She's a gal that came to my mastermind for a few years in a row. So I can start working on a new podcast, which is the King's Table podcast, and then getting ready to launch a real estate kind of market statistics, state of the market, one where I talk about predictions and things that I'm doing. Uh, I did a lot of wild stuff from like 2020 to 2023. I would tell people what I was going to do on my podcast. I would make my predictions. I would tell people alongside. And if they would have invested alongside me or bet alongside me, they would have had a really cool ride. So one of the fun things I like to do is when I make big bets, I like to share it uh, publicly and openly. The I've got a real estate software company where we help people buy foreclosures. I've got a new software called PropHawk where we help people buy real estate all over. And the reality of that is I built that software to manage my own portfolio. And then we just, and we started selling it. And we got out of beta on PropHawk about two months ago. We're still figuring out how to adjust that. But the fun part about all of it, it was software that was again, custom made for me, for my brain. It was the way that I was able to take data that was out there and organize it to buy stuff. And then I started owning some of these other companies. We decided to invest in that. We have a book called The Five-Hour School Week. And part of our journey that I'm going to get into, we had big rises and big falls and big rises and big falls. And at one of those falls, it really, you know, we had this thing of what's important, how to adjust um, and what's important. And, the, and we pulled our kids out of school. Um, and for the next couple of years, we did a ton of travel uh, with that. And we, so we called that The Five-Hour School Week because we believed in an hour a day. Kids could learn what their friends were, were learning at school. And the rest of the day, we could go do a bunch of fun stuff together. It built really cool relationships with our kids. Now they actually go to act, three of the four actually go to an Acton Academy. They don't homeschool anymore. But the time that we put in then during that few year period, I think is a big part of why they are so close to my wife and so close to me. They don't keep secrets from us. And I, I think I mentioned to somebody the day before, in the last couple of days, my 14-year-old daughter went and got her, her first kiss the other night. And when I went to pick her up, she was so excited to tell me, right? She couldn't wait to tell me. And when I was a teenager, the last person I was gonna tell was going to be my parents. And, and the questions that they ask, Kalina and us, they're so open with everything all the time. And they will ask some of the stuff that you're like, I do not wanna hear my daughter asking what that is, right? You can only imagine what those questions are. But because we're so open and honest and because we don't laugh and because like there's no fear out there, like we're prepared for kind of anything, and as a result of that, I know if one of my kids gets arrested like I did, that I'll be their first call instead of the person they're trying to keep it from. 
So that's maybe a kind of a messed up way to go and look at it. But I want to make sure that if my kids get arrested, they call me first. I've got a book on how to buy foreclosures that was published through Bigger Pockets, And then I have some different kind of courses and videos and stuff like that. How singles turned into home runs and how it is now. So this is a kind of investment journey. I'll try to explain some of what we have on here. So our blue line is annual income and the green line is net worth. And so the, and I'll share what happened. So I was like just normal person going to college in here. I graduated the height of the housing boom. The, I was older than, than everybody else. I'd gone to prison for a couple years, came out of prison. And that's a story we don't have time for today. But I came out. We'll see if we have time for quite. How much time do I have for this? What time are we cutting off? All right, it's our event. We're the, I came out of prison at 23 with a chip on my shoulder knowing that I had to catch up for lost time. So when I went to school, I was the best student. I won a couple national championships in home building, and then I got to graduate at the peak of the housing boom. So it was like 2005, 2006, I was getting heavily recruited everywhere. I got to go run a home builder down in Southern California, a new graduate's dream, and really an unrealistic expectation. So I'm making like $130,000 a year, fresh out of college. Colleen and I get married. A month later, we're pregnant. A year later, we have our, our first baby. She's a stay-at-home mom. I'm golfing two or three days a week. As soon as we could build the houses, they're selling. Oh my God, I did it. I'm 25 years old and life is going to be easy from here on out. And it was like totally unrealistic, unfair expectations of what life was supposed to be. Because that's what people think. I'm going to get my college degree. I'm going to go get a job. And then I'm off to the races. The housing market started to crash and started to change. And we didn't quite know it. We were down in Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo area where the housing market was still really strong. But we got a call from our, but our company was based out of Sacramento, like Northern California, and then Phoenix, Arizona. And then they said, hey, we're actually laying off 70 out of 75 people. And if you can move to Sacramento by Monday, you can keep your job. And we're, and at that time, and probably three or four months prior, our pay, my pay got cut from about $130,000 a year to $65,000 a year. Kalina now as a stay-at-home mom didn't get to be a stay-at-home mom anymore. And she started being a waitress at night. And so, and that was even when we lived down in Solvang. And then we got back up to Sacramento. So during that time, I had no investments. I had some income. But then you see a couple of these years where it's like, man, went from uh, having net worth to negative net worth, right? That was just debt. I, I was making $65,000 a year and I had $65,000 uh, in debt. We were trying to figure out what to do during that time. From 08 to 09, it was like trying a whole bunch of things. Trying to start different businesses, trying to work around the clock. The, we had our first baby. Kalina got pregnant with our second baby. And I would come home from work. And at that time, we were, it was like crazy hours too because we're trying to essentially save a home builder that, was, that everything was getting foreclosed on all these bank workouts. And so the, I would come home and on some nights, Kalina would hand me the baby, hand me our baby, Maddie. Kalina was pregnant. And then she would go work nights at the casino as a waitress. Other times, I didn't get, even get to see her that day. So we had like a teenager that we could pay like 10 bucks an hour to babysit our kid for a couple hours where Kalina would hand Maddie to her. A couple hours later, I would get home from work. Kalina would get home at two, three, four in the morning. And then by 6 a.m., our little toddler would wake up. And it was quite often that Kalina was obviously exhausted. So she'd fall asleep on the couch, pregnant, while our one-year-old's walking around like writing on her face and doing all sorts of things. And, the, and then she would have to go do it again. So then again, I'd come home at five or six. She'd hand me the baby. She'd go work. Her only nap time was happening like when our toddler was napping. That was a struggle. So two or three years, we're trying to figure out what's next. The, we'd started to, we tried starting like drafting company and building companies. The, we tried to figure out how to buy foreclosures, like REO foreclosures, because at the time we saw a lot of those happening. The long story short was we like kept going through that process, trying to compete with other people, and we couldn't get any of our offers accepted. 
We found out later is because the agents that were working with the REO with the banks, they had certain people they were going to sell it to no matter what. At first, we'd make an offer and they say, hey, we already accepted an offer last week. Okay, and then we'd start doing faster. And then we got to a point where it would get on MLS and it would like, we'd get the notification and we would send an offer within eight or nine minutes. Here's our offer on it. And it was always like cash over asking, here's our offer. And they would say, sorry, we've already accepted an offer. And we're like, that is unbelievable. So then one of the businesses we did get to discover was like, what happens before that? And that was courthouse step foreclosure. So before a bank owns it, courthouse step foreclosures is, it's literally on the courthouse steps. And this trustee comes out and he says, John Smith, here's the record. There's one for sale. And so we discovered that industry. Nobody was doing it. There was two other guys standing there at the time. There was no course on it. There was no way to do it. I had to read bank records and bank documents to see what that process was going to be like. We went and watched it for a couple of weeks. And the, at that time, I was still working with the, the home builders because there was like because we were all trying to figure out what was next. We ended up getting to go to an auction. And I'll never forget that first auction. The, we're, they're waiting for one house. And the, the auctioneer, Eddie, he says, okay, here's the property. Opening bid is 120,000, going once, going twice. And the guy that was with me, that was, was one of my business partners at the time, well, I was working for him essentially. He goes, we want to bid? And Eddie goes, do you want to bid a penny over? And we said, yes. And he goes, all right, 120 and a penny, going once, going twice, sold. He grabs the checks from Glenn because you have to hold your checks up. It's cash at that point. And it was really cash that we had from building a, a hotel somewhere else. And we had draws from the owner, but we didn't owe our subs for another two months. So that was the money we were using to buy that house because we had nothing left, right? It was like huge, big risk at the time. So we get it. He takes it. The other two bidders go, <gasps> and then they walk away and they're almost like pointing at us laughing. And we're like, oh my God. So it wasn't even our life savings. It wasn't even our money, right? Like it was ours for 60 days, but we needed to figure something out after that. So then we start asking, we're like filling out the paperwork and we're scared. And, the, and we're like, why? It doesn't say the address on the receipt. And Eddie says, that's not how it works. We don't put addresses. We say what, what bank, what, what loan document it is. And we're like, so how does this work? He says, if you actually got a property, you'll get a deed sent to you in a couple weeks in the mail. We say, what? And so we're like still talking to Eddie and we're like asking him questions. What about this? What about that? And he just gets to a point where he just finishes his stuff, hands us the receipt and, the, and he gets on his skateboard and he rides off. Now his desk was a trash can at the courthouse. I should have put a picture in it with his laptop on top of that trash can. Okay, so we discovered a business plan that worked. So the, we went and had the person move out. We put it on the market. We were able to sell it. We made money. We're like, wow, this is amazing. We went back to auction every day for the next three months. And any of the houses we came up with, we weren't actually, none of them actually came up for bid. But to figure out what that system was, we had beginner's luck the first time. That was just God had a big plan for me or that would have never happened, right? I would have gone for a week, got discouraged. But the reason we didn't get discouraged for those three months is we knew it was possible if we could just figure out how, to, how the system actually worked. So we we're about five or six months into that. And the, and Colleen and I were, were at the mall getting ready to get pregnancy pictures. The right before, because the baby's, she's now seven months pregnant, seven and a half months pregnant and her water breaks. So her water, and we're like, wait, your water's not supposed to be breaking. This is way early. We go to the hospital. She's six weeks early, like terrifying moment for us. We're like, why is this happening? And they were like, you're going to have the baby tonight. Colleen's I'm not going to have the baby tonight. Like, this is not our plan tonight. This is not what we're supposed to be doing. But we did. We had that baby that night. And at first the baby comes out. And we're like, everything's okay. And then they start hooking her up to oxygen. And they're trying to warn me like, hey, this is okay. And then they have me and the baby leave. And Kalina doesn't see us for a few hours. So she's wondering what's going on. And they have, and our baby wasn't doing great because our baby was born super early. And it was on our very first baby, Madeline, was born on her due date. 
It was a very normal pregnancy and normal everything. It was like picture perfect, exactly the way you planned. We had our go bag and we had our pictures and she and Kleena had her outfit that she was gonna wear afterward in the baby outfit. And Charlotte was different. And so the I remember the moments. So for the next couple of weeks, Charlotte's staying at the hospital. And when Kleena actually had to come home and leave the baby there, that was surreal and not fun. And a lot of people have had that experience, right? Like we're not the only people who have had that experience. But whenever people do, I know it's harder. And then every few hours, she would drive back to the hospital to try to check on the baby. So again, like no rest as we're trying to struggle with that. But that was our moment. So we'll say, when did I start my business? When did I become an entrepreneur? And it was September 2009 because when I was staring at Charlotte with all these bubblers and machines hooked up to her and going, oh my God, this is my fault. This is why my wife should not have been a waitress pregnant at 3 a.m. running around a smoke-filled casino in order to help provide for our family. Like this should not be a requirement. So like I screwed up. And so that was my moment where I was like, I need to quit my job and really go for this new business that I've discovered and, and we need to be able to go all in. And the and it worked out, like the funny thing was because the baby was born, I had about two weeks off from work. And then during that time, I, I went and talked to my dad. I said, hey, I've got this new business plan idea. We had He had tried to invest alongside with the people that I was doing it with. And they said, no, we don't want you guys to invest. And I ex- explained it to my dad and he's, uh, okay, like I could believe in this. He was a home builder but didn't have any money anymore. Like he didn't have any business anymore. So he had some money saved, but he didn't have a business plan either because nobody's building custom homes during a recession, during a foreclosure crisis. And so he invested in me. But the way I talked him into investing in me, that first one is I was doing it for free, right? I wasn't gonna, there was no profit split, right? It was, he had to make a bet on me. It was an industry that, that nobody had really done at scale before. I knew how to run a home builder at scale. And I envisioned that we could do it that way. He invested in me for that. We were able to buy a house the, while we were off on, on leave that week, right? And that really gave us the confidence to go, okay, now we need to quit our job. So middle of October, I quit my job. I give notice to the guys, say, hey, we're leaving. And we had six weeks of savings, right? And we're like, okay, we have six weeks of savings. Now we can go start our business. Because I knew exactly what I was going to be doing. People will tell me, hey, I want to quit my job and go become an entrepreneur. And I'll say, then you better know exactly what you're going to do, like eight to 10 to 12 hours a day, every day for the next three months. Because a lot of people will quit their job and go become an agent. And then on Monday, they'll spend an hour like trying to do something, like sending some emails or prospecting, and then that's it. Or they'll go hold an open house the next day. So if you're ready to quit your job and go all in on your business, just know this is how I'm going to spend my 40 hours this week. Because it's not going to be you quit your job and you work less. It's going to be you quit your job and you work way, way more for a while as you get to do like kind of that journey. So I start as, I'm, uh, from then on, the next six weeks, I'm driving houses every day. I'm, I'm going to auction the next day. Sometimes Kalina's driving houses, going to auction, holding, holding Charlotte on her chest as she's doing it. But the craziest part that happened, so like October 2009 was there became a foreclosure moratorium. They made foreclosures illegal for the next six weeks. So we would go to auction every day and everything kept getting canceled. And it was literally like 12, 14 hour days doing this. And I remember in like December, like right after Christmas, 2009, telling Kalina, we're out of money. My six weeks in savings is gone. I said, so if I don't buy a house next week, I need to go find a job again. Like we tried and we almost did it. So I got to get a house this week. And, the, and at, by you know, grace of God again and a miracle, January 1st, 2010, they released the foreclosure moratorium. First auction back on January 3rd, 2010, I bought two houses. And I bought one on Snow Leopard Court in Elk Grove. So the Kalina remembers listing that one later. And then we, and we bought another one up in Lincoln. So about two houses that day. And then all of a sudden it was off to the races. Right? And remember these first ones I was doing for free, Kalina had got her license. So then she was going to be able to get a small commission to be able to start doing this. But we had to prove out what our business plan was. 
So we've done four or five houses. My dad texts a buddy of his and says, hey, look what my son's doing. It's pretty cool. And he goes, he goes, do you want to invest with me? This guy named Arnold. Arnold's still a mentor of mine today. He's in his 80s. A brilliant man. And he's where I get all my like, advice that I'm giving people now about what's going to happen because he was a big developer in 1980. And in the 80s, the last time, all these interest rates changed. Arnold said, my dad said, hey, do you want to come invest with me? Arnold reached out to his stock manager, a guy named JJ, and said, hey, I need to pull $200,000 out. I'm going to invest in this kid down in Sacramento. And I got a call from a guy named JJ that said, hey, I live up in Incline Village up in Tahoe. I actually manage people's money. I hear that you're doing something really cool down there. We'd like to meet you. We'd like you to come up. So then I'm like, oh my gosh. And, and on that, when, like, when that was happening, I think maybe it was like the first meeting was during the time when I was still employed. So it was probably before that, that first six-week thing. But they didn't end up investing in me until you know, later when I bought those first houses in January. But I'm at that meeting and I'm presenting to like these 10 guys and they're asking me all sorts of stuff. What happens if this? What happens if people bid against you? What happens if you want to go over? What happens if it's occupied? And I said, answers for everything. And we're on the whiteboard and we're coming up with it. But I had answers for a lot of stuff. But again, I was inventing an industry. It hadn't been done before. It hadn't been done at scale. And near the end of the conversation, they go, so what are you looking for? And I said, I would really like a loan of $250,000 to $300,000 so I can go buy, some, buy another house, essentially. And they laughed at me during that time. And it was somewhere in, the, in that meeting, I realized this could be a really big moment. One of the guys was the vice president of Apple that was in there. And again, a bunch of wealthy guys that went and moved to Incline Village so they wouldn't have to pay California income tax anymore. Incline Village is, is as close as you can get to California, but not be in California. So it's the place where all the wealthy people go and they don't want to pay taxes. So the, and so at the end of the call, as they're talking, one of the guys goes, I'm in for a million. The guy goes, I'm in for a million. And, the, and so as we're like, as I'm leaving, we've got a commitment of three or four million dollars to go try to do this thing at scale to see if we could actually like, instead of trying to think about it as like one house. And the thing that they encouraged me for is like, this is an annual return thing. You don't need to make 10, 15, 20% a house. We need to make, we need to give our investors like 15 to 20% a year right now. And so we were off to the races, 2009 to 2012, we flipped over a thousand houses. We made tons and tons of money during that time. Again, we had invented an industry. We were like, Kalina was the biggest broker in Northern California because she was selling all of my stuff. And things we thought could not get any, could not get any better. The funny part about that time is you see, so I'm making cash and I have some net worth, but that net worth was only cash and savings. You guys are a million steps ahead of me from where my journey was. Like by 2011, I made 1.3 million that year and we had 400,000 in savings. I didn't own a house. Right? We were flipping houses, but we were renting the houses that we lived in. And by 2012, it was similar. So a few years in a row, making lots of money, the only savings we had uh, was cash. So the, I, we weren't investing any other, any other things. I didn't have mentors. I didn't have groups. I talked about if I'd have had GoBundance uh, back in 2009, I'd be a billionaire now. And I, don't, and I believe that. And I think that. Because we, had, we were in the front end of something that had never happened before that was like, like you'll have four or five like once in a lifetime opportunities in your life. I've had three so far. I've probably got two left. And when they happen, you want to be able to see them and figure out how to maximize on them. The first two I didn't maximize on enough. The last one I did a pretty good job on that we'll get into. 2012, the Blackstone comes out and they say, hey, we're interested in this business. We would like to essentially buy your company. We'd like you to come work for us. We'd like you to come be an employee. We're going to do this stuff at scale. I was too young and dumb and I didn't have mentors. And I said, you can't put me out of business. Like we made 50 grand last month alone in just the commissions. That's not even our profits. It's not even this. We can't be touched. We are the best. By that time, a lot of people were doing the businesses. We had hundreds of competitors at the time, but we were still the absolute best. 
And again, I was too young and too cocky to even do a quick Google of who is Blackstone. Like that would have been really smart. Or if I'd had a mentor or somebody to ask, hey, this happened, what should I do about it? And again, that was the first time in a, in a lifetime thing. Like the, the big hedge funds had never gotten to single family that way. So the long story short is I said, you're not gonna put me out of business. And they put me out of business. So, the, so this year, so that year in like 2012, 2013, you can see my income went from 1.7 to zero. I went from having a million in cash in the bank to about $800,000 in debt. And when people say like, how did that happen, right? We, didn't, we weren't buying bad investments, but I had a lot of employees. We had company cars, we had company health plans, and every month we would go to auction and we just kept getting beat. Now, auction, it's normal to have a dry spell, right? Like if you guys are buying real estate, maybe you're gonna make three offers in a row and get them accepted. And sometimes you're gonna make 50 offers to get one accepted. So it wasn't abnormal to go, okay, we'll get one tomorrow. We'll get one tomorrow. Oh, we just missed that one by a hundred bucks. Oh, we just missed that one by a thousand bucks. But all of a sudden, like eight or nine months later, I remember telling Kalina, hey, I need you to transfer some money into my account for, for the mortgage or for a payroll. She goes, I don't have any more money in the brokerage account. You took the last of it last month. And I went, oh my God. So I had to go to the office that day, figure out how to scrape up that last bit of payroll, but then tell everybody that was their last day. And at that point, we still had some working out and stuff to do. So, the, so I've got this time from like 2012, 2013, 2014, even as we come into so like the two-year period where it was like doing whatever it took just to make the mortgage. And it was like, still, I found like a couple markets where I could go flip houses where nobody was. Super depressing time. And you go from making hundreds of thousands of dollars a month to nothing. And so again, I'm looking at my wife, I'm looking at my kids, I'm looking at my family. Wow, I let everybody down. It's that same moment as when I saw Charlotte in the incubator. And you start to go, man, what I would do different, what I would have done different. If I just had one more chance, what I would do different. And the, but it was a struggle and it was like really difficult. I read uh, Hal Elrod's Miracle Morning and I read Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Workweek. And when I started combining those two things, the way that I was able to keep the business going was I would get up at 4 a.m. and I would do the Tim Ferriss Four Hour Workweek for the first two hours of the day. And I would do all my office stuff, all my emails, all the accounting, all the everything. And then at 8 a.m., the, I would go actually do physical labor on my construction sites because for some of the assets that we were still owning, because we had a few of them that we were finishing out, I was gonna have to pay somebody to do the dry rot repair. I was gonna have to pay somebody to do the painting repair. So I started doing it myself. And there was this moment in 2015, end of 2014, 2015, yeah, I'm applying to be an Uber driver. I'm applying to be a building inspector at the city of Napa. And it's going, okay, if we can make six or $7,000 a month, that's not gonna cover our mortgage. But like, it's time. It's time to essentially give up, right? And during that time, like our family was in, or, or, like our family was in shambles because we had realized all these things we had learned during that time. But all the time we said, man, if we ever had another chance, this is what we'd do. 2015, I had, I had this second chance happen. It was really wild, really crazy. We had bought a, an apartment complex. Like the only asset that we had was like this apartment complex that we bought in a, in a city called Killeen, Texas. I had only been out there one time. I was so afraid of flying when I f even first went out there that I flew to Dallas and then I drove three hours instead of getting on a second flight because I didn't want to double my chances of dying in a plane accident. So I was only going to fly somewhere direct and then drive the rest of the time. So I had, a, I had an apartment out there that was like an okay asset. Didn't really have equity in it, but it would get some cash flow every month. And the agent that sold that to me sent me an email and said, hey, the apartment across the street's for sale, but we have to move quick. It's scheduled for foreclosure. And she sends me the rent roll and all these things. And I'm like, okay, this is cool. So I'm looking at it. I'm like, it's scheduled for foreclosure, huh? 
So then I tell Kalino, hey, I think like maybe we can get the money together. We still had a line of credit together that my dad had. My dad had passed away during this time too, which was a crazy, what are our life lessons thing? So if anything could have gone wrong during this time, it, was, it had gone wrong, right? And so the, we still had a line of credit left. So I was able to scrape up $350,000, fly out there to auction, and I'm standing at the auction. But again, I flew to Dallas and drove, so I'd only have to get on one flight that day. And the trustee shows up. And she says, okay, the opening bid is $340,000. I have $350,000 with me. It's like a $700,000 apartment. And she goes, going once, going twice. And I freeze. And she goes, sold. And I don't bid on it. And I call Kalina. And I'm like in tears. I said, I didn't do it. I got cold feet. I got stage fright. Like I hadn't been successful for three years. Right? Here, nobody could touch me at auction. I'd been to thousands of them. Right? I was the absolute guru in it. But here... I'd lost all my like self-esteem, all my hope, like all, all this stuff. So I'm sitting there at auction and I'm telling her, she's like, we couldn't even afford the Southwest flight. You just flew out there on. Like, she's like, why didn't you bid on it? So I'm like sitting there sulking and just like get off the phone and just be feeling really sorry for myself. Like I had been for a while. Oh, I'm going to cry. So the turn that, no, I'm just kidding. All right. So they turn off the cameras for a second. Another trustee shows up while I'm sitting there. And he starts selling houses. And he starts selling houses for forty dollars and $50,000 a piece. And I look around and nobody's sitting there. I'm the only one standing at that auction. And he sells like 30 or 40 houses. And again, my mantra was, man, if I ever got another chance, I would do my life so different. So 2015, middle of Colleen, Texas, the strangest little place in the world that I never would have expected being, I thought, oh my God, this is like 2009 California. So all the lessons that I got to learn during this time, I got another chance at when I hit, when I got to Colleen. So some of those lessons were, I remember thinking here, we had flipped a thousand houses. Man, if I just kept 50 of those houses, we'd have been set for life. If we would have just invested some of that money back then, we would have been set for life because it was always about like vertical income instead. So, and then we also said, we also knew during this time, we wasted money on a bunch of crazy stuff. So if we ever get another chance, I'm going to spend my money on good things. We're going to, we're going to donate more we're gonna do more experiences over things, things like that. So I get my second chance. Cleaning gets our, we, our family gets our second chance. And to me, it was like, I believe that like when God realized we had truly learned our lesson, that like that's when it opened back up. People talk about like when mindset, when you're first ready, as soon as you're ready for the moment hits. And for me to have two once in a lifetime opportunities was crazy, but it happened you know, in that moment. All right, so then I fly out to Texas every month. I buy, 10, I buy about 10 rentals, put renters in them. We get loans on them. We flip one a month to cover our mortgage and now cover our bills. We're like off to the races. We can't believe this is working because again, I'm like, it feels like I'm inventing an industry during that time. The, about 2017, I bought the data company in Texas that sells the foreclosure data. I remember in California in 2012 when there was hundreds of people bidding against me. I said, the only guy winning today is the guy selling us the list. So I bought the foreclosure data company as a diversification play. I said, someday... People will be outbidding me in Texas, which is happening today. And someday people will be outbidding me in Texas, but when they do, I need to be the one selling them the list. Because at the time when I bought the list, I was still one of the only bidders in Bell County, in the place that I was buying a lot of stuff. <laughs> now, the journey that's slow, that some of you guys will try to, you'll probably experience. By 2017, we had like a couple hundred houses, but the cash flow was still only like seven or $8,000 a month. And you're like, man. Nah. You're like, is this what this is all for? Every month I'm flying to Texas, I'm driving houses, I'm doing manual labor. Like I hadn't even really built much of a team yet. 
and it was like a long haul. But when I talk about like how do singles turn into home runs, then the nice thing about all those is it was nice and safe. Part of why I love Texas is I said, I don't want the high highs and the low lows we had in California. I want nice and stable. So we're just gonna buy a bunch of rentals in Texas because prices had never gone up in Texas and prices will never go up in Texas. In 2020, prices went up in Texas. The, it were like, so that little bet went pretty well. And the, and it really created this like mass, oh my gosh, what a right place in the right time type thing. And then I call myself the trend spotter. Like what we try to do, like I was the first person to do foreclosures in Sacramento at scale, but I wasn't, but I could see the trend, but I wasn't able to capitalize on it because I didn't have mentors and really ideas. And then we got to Texas. I got, everybody lives in Texas now. Everybody's moving to Texas, but we got there early. We started investing there when you could still get a house for $100,000 that was like 4,000 square feet, a year old, granite countertops. I couldn't even believe they could build houses for that much. All right, and we had a bunch of them back then and they were renting for 14, 1500 a month. It was incredible. January, 2021, the market had started to slow down everywhere. I don't know if you guys were in real estate at the time, but 2020 was like these huge gains. Right. So like in 2020, from like June to December, prices are going through the roof. January 2021 hits and everybody goes, all right, that's that was crazy. But now we're at a bubble. Market's going to crash. There's no way it's going to keep going. We've seen these 30 percent increases of what's going on. So January 2021, houses are sitting on the market. Nothing's selling in Texas at that time. What I learned from Blackstone way back here, part of the reason I said you'll never be able to put me out of business because I said, those houses don't cash flow. Like you're not gonna be able to buy a rental at $300,000 and rent it for 1,200. It just doesn't make sense. They're not gonna buy anything. But what Blackstone did that I wasn't ready for is they bought every house that was on the auction blocks and foreclosure. They bought every house that was on MLS. They bought every single listing in Sacramento, tens of thousands of properties. But what happened, what, what can you guess happened after that to prices? All right, people still wanted to buy houses. So Blackstone bought everything on the market for about 14 months. So it made prices increase like 50, 60%. And then Blackstone did this amazing cash out refinance that I thought was so brilliant because they had built so much equity in that. And cash out refinance, you don't pay taxes on. So they had like billions of dollars of cash out refinances on all of these assets. And I realized it was a asset play instead. So January, 2021, I remember texting my agent and said, we need to buy... And at that time, like our funds were growing. We've got like some hedge funds or some like private equity funds that we've raised. We're texting my agent saying, we need to buy $40 million worth of real estate in the next 60 days. Send me everything listed on MLS, built 1985 and newer. We're gonna buy everything for asking price on MLS at the time. Now, part of that was what we had forecasted. Why did I think prices were gonna go up? Because Biden had just been elected. They had just thrown a bunch more money into stimulus. And it was a really easy belief that right now, at that point, rates were really low and with so much extra stimulus that inflation was going to throw stuff through the roof. And that January pause was just a January pause. And we had so much more room to go. So we did. We bought everything on the market that we could buy, including we bought a whole bunch of like neighborhoods that were under construction. The crazy part about that is there was like neighborhoods of all these duplexes together. We wrote full price offers on all of them. The reason that they would sell it to us, like even though they weren't gonna be done for 10 months is because the bankers thought the market was gonna crash. So they wouldn't release them their next draw unless they had a contract. So we would write offers on all of these different things. We had one proof of funds for $6 million. So we'd use it for this builder and this builder and this builder. And we tied up the whole neighborhood. And I remember the banker calling me and saying, I'm the banker for all those builders. You You provided a proof of funds for $6 million. 
but that's $30 million worth of, of purchases that you're going to be doing. Maybe it's 20 or something like that. And I said, well, that's none of your business. <laughs> right? Like the, he's not allowed to tell them that he's a lender for anybody else. And, and that was the last call I had with him. In October of 2021, when we went to go close on those duplexes, because they were now done, they appraised for $420,000. We were in escrow on them for $280,000. So we were able to buy all of those with cash out refis. So every duplex we purchased, we got $60,000 tax-free at closing when we did it. So that was like predicting the market, seeing the market, knowing that like here, oh my God, what did Blackstone do to me? It could have ruined, it, it did ruin my life for a period of time. It could ruin your life. So you'll have these experiences where something could ruin your life for a period of time. But then going, that's going to help you for your next moment. Because then when I saw it again, I got to do what Blackstone did. Now, the funny thing is we learn stuff when it's painful. Like I learned a lot during this time because I was going through a lot of pain. This is funny. This was the first house I ever bought to live in. The, I did stuff in the wrong order. So the, so like, Meaning, so we always rented houses. People be like, why don't you own the house you live in? I'm like, because I want to get a house at a deal at auction. I'm not going to overpay for anything. And I want to be able to flip it. If I buy a house for $40,000 less than it's worth, all I could think about was vertical income. So where I should have been buying houses way back when, we bought this house in 2012. And, and believe it or not, that was the first house we ever lived in that we actually owned, 32 years old. So I rented the home I lived in until I was 32 years old. But again, we did that in the wrong order. That was a really fun place to live. Now, it was a foreclosure. When we first bought it, we had to put all sorts. This is like a 2,500 square foot putting green. And there's like fishing ponds down here. It's 10 acres in the back. The basketball court, the sand pits, all the things. During COVID, we would, when we were living in Texas, we would Airbnb it at $2,000 a night. For 90 days, it stayed booked during that time. So 90 days in a row, 2,000 bucks a night. And I remember when, so we bought that right before we lost all our money. And I remember thinking like, oh my, we tried to sell our house right? When I lost all the money and we're in debt every month and we couldn't sell it. But what we did know is everybody wanted to party there. So, and Airbnb was a new thing. So first I post pictures of our house that we had taken for sale and posted on Airbnb for like $400 a month or $400 a night. And I had so many messages the next day. And I was like, whoa. So then I took down the listing and said, maybe there's some interest in this. So then we kept, I kept raising it. So then it went to $1,500 a night and, and people were booking it. So we were living there at the time, but then what would happen is people would book out a four-day stay, 6,000 bucks, then we could go take that money and we could put some toward our bills and then we could go on vacation. So we started waiting to plan our vacations until someone would book our house to live in. And if we could do it twice a month, we could now cover our mortgage while we were doing it. This was right around the same time we discovered the Texas market. And then that, because again, nobody wanted to live in the house because having 10 acres and the big house was a whole lot of, our land, our, we had full-time landscapers that were 40 hours a week, Right. So people didn't want that maintenance, but everybody wanted to party there. And so it was great for an accidental Airbnb investment. So this is a quick thing of how many houses I bought each year. Like the, these different sayings, like 50, 50 a year, 100, 150. And it's cyclical. Like real estate gets to be cyclical as you're doing investing. So like lessons from going broke. So the, one of them, as anything can happen and income is temporary. Anything. So the, when 2020 hit, for, for, foreclosure moratorium happened again. At that time, I owned four or five different companies, but my foreclosure software company that was making fifty or $60,000 a month went to zero. My company where I was buying foreclosures on the courthouse steps and flipping them went to zero. So two of my companies, when COVID hit, went from lot, you know, making $100,000 a month to nothing, right? 
Or when Blackstone came in and started bidding against me, it was overnight. Went from making hundreds of thousands of dollars a month to nothing. So one of those lessons we learned during that time is money, money is temporary. It can be taken away at any time. Your income can be taken away at any time. So you should try to plan for it. And you should also know it comes and goes. I remember in 2014-ish, a buddy of mine called me for a loan. And I said, sorry, I don't have any money. I lost it all. I went out of business. And he's like, what? He was like my film guy. So like a year and a half prior, he was out there like filming. We created a bunch of cool videos of these four and five day flips we were doing. He's like, your house, your office, your people, like how could you go out of business? And he like almost starts to cry and he's very sad. But by that time I'd learned my lesson. I remember laughing and saying, dude, it's fine. I know my next opportunity is right around the corner. I know I'm gonna find it. Like I know that it's, it's gonna happen again. I just need to keep waiting and be patient for it to hit. I remember at the time thinking Donald Trump had filed bankruptcy like three or four times, right? And that was like one of the things that I would tell myself. Like the, my moment's gonna happen. Once you know how to make money, you can make money at different times. But just knowing it's temporary and to be able to plan for it and the diversification, right? Like the, like doing something now to invest that money somehow. Don't force a bad investment, but just knowing like the mindset again, if you've got five or $600,000 in your W-2, something could happen where it goes away. Something unfathomable. There's nothing somebody could have told me in March, 2020 that, that two of my businesses were gonna go from a lot of money to zero by something completely outside my control. Airbnbs become illegal in some cities, right? So income goes from there to nothing. The government gets more involved in all sorts of things. So just know that no matter what your business is, you could think that it's bulletproof and it's not. The other part of that was life is short and experiences over things. I remember one of the things we said when we were like sitting there broke is, man, we regretted the $2,000 sunglasses. We regretted some of the crazy, extravagant things that we did. We regretted trying to buy friends in different ways that we did, but we did not regret our trips or our vacations. So while money is temporary and life is short, do your bucket list stuff now. And really we spent those next three, and my dad had died at 64 with money in the bank, never retired with stuff that he was gonna do. So we made sure that we spent that time like doing bucket list stuff. And over those next few years, we did a lot of that, like the experiences over things. And then be generous with the right things. Give away your income, give it to good causes. So the, it's funny, it started with one, I'll just really hit on this really quick because you guys are already mostly experienced real estate people. But this was the first one I invested uh, with my dad before we quit our job. And I still underwrite things the same way today. So somebody had talked about if you're gonna buy a house or an apartment or a 10 unit storage building or a 100 unit storage building or a 500 storage unit building, I use the same spreadsheet still. The dollars just change, whether it's on volume. There's an analysis for rentals or there's an analysis for flips, but this is the same way that we do it. And it was like a miracle at the time. We bid, you know, 200, we we back into what's the most we're willing to pay for something. We were willing to pay 228,000. We bought it for 225,000. It sold right away and it made $34,000 in a 45-day period. And it was incredible. So the, you guys are talking about scaling your businesses and like what it takes. And that was one of the things that Brian wanted me to, to hit on is when you're starting at the beginning, how do you know when to hire, how to grow, what to make things happen? Every color is a different business of mine that I own, right? The, we've got, so this is like household ideas. My CPA, the gal that does my marketing, my executive assistant, I put our house cleaner on here. Cleaner will probably laugh. At the time I had a chef that was delivering food every day, he was on here. The people that help us run a household because as a household gets bigger, it's important. And so some of that planning is something to be thinking about. I put my possible investment partners on here as soon as anybody expresses interest because it's always important to know who could I get money from 
if a crazy investment, if a crazy opportunity happens and I'm not ready. So this is an eight foot poster that's behind my desk at my office. And front and center, it'll be like, who are the possible people that I might do business with? This is the guy that I share my Spurs tickets with. We haven't done any business together, but he's a billionaire. And I know if I have the right ask, like I could do it. But just that reminder, because different times, it's like, how am I going to put together this puzzle when I'm going to build my tower in downtown Austin or something else? So keeping those people front and center. The green is my home rock company. So the so we own 800 houses in that asset. So the, we have 800 houses in Home Rock. The, we have different levels of investments in all of them, a couple hundred of them, just JJ and I own. There's, there's some of them that we own 25% in and others that we only own five or 6% in. But managing that asset, we've got, he's got my principal partner, executive assistant. We have a couple people in accounting. We've got our manager, property managers. We've got our VAs that do collections and renewals and turn utilities off and on. We've got our construction guys, our customer service people. Like, but this company now, the, I spend about an hour a week with them over the month. So I'll spend four hours on this company. Um, I get a big horizontal income check from that. And most of what we live on is from there. So, the, so it took a while to grow that. But, the, but most people, when they see that, they actually go, that's actually not a very big org chart for 800 houses, right? And for, for a business that brings you $50,000 a month horizontally, right? That's not a very big org chart for that. But part of that is if I had a bigger org chart, it would be less. So if I'm making $50,000 a month on that, but I had three more employees doing that, I'd be making 40 or 35. So as you guys think about scaling and how you scale your business, some of the next slides I'm going to show are all about the financial choice. We want freedom really fast. Our freedom, did, like our business freedom did not come fast. I know that like 2016, 2017, when I'm flying to Texas every month and clean his home with the kids that time or homeschooling, that wasn't fun. That wasn't easy. And it still took a long time for it to fill. This is my software company, much bigger org chart here, the, where we have our, our foreclosure company, our prop pot company. And then we have another 40 people that are contractors that work for us a day or two a month as part of that org chart. The, I put my new startup ideas on here. Just remember to keep thinking about what's next. So do I want to start one of these? I need to put my like downtown tower up here. As new ideas come, I add them to my org chart. This section is my real estate rock stars and a mastermind podcast. I've got people that are like, and then sometimes I'll put, hey, this is what I need. So I've got my blanks. So maybe you need a head of construction someday, or someday I would like a head of the mastermind, but I can't afford it yet. Someday I need a CFO, but, it, but he hasn't presented himself yet. The, so you have these different like holes in the org chart too. This is like my podcast, my Real Estate Rockstars Mastermind. It's a once a year event that we do in March in Austin. I've got a construction company that last year had eight people inside it. This year it's really small. I'm trying to figure out if we're going to relaunch that. And this is what I call my family office stuff. Like people that I've actually invented, invested in land. I have a $5 million climate controlled storage building we built in, in Michigan. We own a title company. We're building a storage unit in, in Waco. We've got um, different houses that, the, that Kalina and I own or we own with one partner. So we've got another 80 houses there. We have an 80 unit apartment complex. And so like different parts of the org chart. So again, the reason I, the biggest reason I show that is because Brian said a lot of you guys are challenging with how, like, how do you grow? How do you grow and how do you scale? And so as you do that, like you should have your org chart right now of what it is. And then when you're thinking about those guys' visions, so Joe's telling you, do your 10-year plan of what things are gonna look like and really do your vivid vision, right? Like the stuff you guys were talking about last night. And I do a way more practical approach to that afterward. And I go, so what's your org chart gonna look like in 10, five, two, and then know where your holes are, right? 
Now, the reality is we're probably down five or six million dollars in net worth in the last year. Our business has struggled. The market has struggled. That's what happens. Real estate goes up. Sometimes real estate goes down. So there was part of this org chart that had to be adjusted again too. Because there was a time like 18 months ago, I was going to get out of most operations and I was just going to be a family office. I was just going to start investing in other things. And so that family office section had grown more and this had grown more. But now I'm having to get back to active to go, okay, so the, uh, in 2021, I was making an extra couple hundred thousand dollars a month in active sort of income stuff. Nobody feels bad for you if you say, hey, I went from $4 million a year in income to a million dollars a year in income. No one feels bad for you, but it hurts, right? Because one thing that, we, that I've done a really bad job at is the, it is, it's really easy to spend more. It's really hard to spend less. Once you've flown first class, like sitting, once you've flown like Emirates business class to Europe, lay down. Dude, do you ever want to sit in a normal plane again? Like the re- If you sit in coach anywhere now, I'm just upset and angry. <laughs> it's, yeah, never fly first class. There's the reality. But at the same time, life is short. Enjoy the experiences. Do the things. Figure out what you want to spend money on. But it's hard to reverse and go stuff the other way. All right. What's the dream, right? What's the dream of Action Academy? Quit my job. Travel the world by investing in real estate. Right? That's not exactly how I've done it. So the, and, and as you guys think about your goals, there's gonna be some stuff I'm gonna say that might be a bummer, right? But hopefully what it does is it helps put that combination of the specific actions to get to the stuff where Joe's saying, you can make $500,000 a month. You can make $5 million a month. So the, we'll do some of the practical. So that's not exactly how I did it. Real estate became my job. And in life, there's like that trap of more. People say, one of the questions you guys ask is when is enough? Is wanted to say, like, when, why don't you retire? If you've got that much horizontal income, why don't you retire? Like, how much do you need? How much do you want? For me, that's a really tough question because I do remember when $10,000 a month was going to be amazing, when Joe's example of $25,000 a month was going to be amazing. But I want more. I want more for lots of different reasons. And some of it like seems really superficial. Like, I love it when we fly private because we get four or five extra hours of our life. I remember being at a meeting uh, with one of my business partners up in Tahoe. And we're having this meeting with somebody and we realized by like five at night that the meeting's actually not going to go till nine or 10. We're going to be done by six. It just isn't going where we thought it was going to go. We thought we were going to be buying a company and then it got to the point where we're like, we're not going to make a deal today. And he shoots a text to his assistant and says, hey, we're going to be done. Get everybody to the plane, get food on the plane. We're going home in an hour. So we leave the meeting and we head over to the airport and we're sleeping in our beds in Austin that night instead of getting back the next day at like noon. So the little things like that are where you control. When our daughter was sick in Arkansas, the, that's a part I'm going to get into, but for six months, my daughter, my 14-year-old daughter, was, our 15-year-old daughter, was living in Arkansas, essentially at a treatment center. My wife stayed up there the first two months. I stayed up there the next month. She stayed up there for a month. Like We lived apart because we had three other kids living in Austin and one kid living up in Arkansas. The times when we got to fly private, Colleen and I got to have lunch together. She could fly in the jet to me. We could have lunch. We could take as much time as we wanted because there was no schedule we had to make. And then I would fly back, right? So it was 15 grand instead of a thousand bucks. But we had lots of times where the flights would get canceled or we'd miss the connection in Dallas as we were going. So it's a one hour flight private. It's a seven hour flight if you're connecting. There was a lot of time we ended up having to drive half the time. I remember one of the times like the flight connection missed. So then Kalina drove all the way from Arkansas, met me in Dallas. I switched cars and then she drove. Right? So what did flying private do that day? Gave us an extra hour to to eat lunch together. 
Is that worth $14,000? If you have a lot, it is. If you can't make your mortgage, it's not. I like a lot more than I like a little. Some, like a quick story is, so Maddie, my daughter, got incredibly sick out of nowhere. So during COVID, she breaks her ankle. Well, we bought an RV. We're traveling 17 states. She breaks her ankle. Freak accident. She's 14. No big deal. In six weeks, she's going to be better. Six weeks later, she's is better and then re-breaks it. Bone didn't heal all the way. Okay, that sucks. We were getting ready to go to, we we're supposed to leave on a trip to Cancun the next week. COVID was hard on my family because we went from traveling the world to not. We had moved from California to Texas in a moment and you don't get to meet people if you move into a neighborhood the day that COVID shuts down the state. Now, Texas was a better place to live than most, but it was still very hard on us. So now, so around during that time, the long story short, Maddie breaks her ankle a third time. And then we're like freaking out and we're going to doctors and saying, what's the last break too was she was like walking through our house, rolled it, boom, breaks. So at that point, Kalina's panicking. Is our life ever going to be normal again? What's wrong? This isn't normal, right? She's off. Maddie's panicking. What's wrong? This isn't normal. We're going into doctors and, and they're like, and they're, and they're like screaming at the doctors. Like, what is wrong? Why won't she heal? We're going to the best of the best. It turned into this freak disease called CRPS, which is a pain syndrome, which makes it to where your whole body feels like it's on fire. It starts attacking the nervous system. And I remember my daughter in May of 2022, she couldn't eat, she couldn't sleep, she couldn't wear socks, she couldn't wear shoes. She was in a wheelchair. She was staying in her room in the dark. We had a TV in there, a phone in there. She couldn't even watch TV because her headaches were so bad from this freak disease. So she'd get out of bed twice a week and it felt like our daughter, it would have been so much simpler to say she's dying of cancer because CRPS is complicated. When we try to explain all the things behind it, people are like, wait, so it's in her head, it's neurological. Like we don't like, understand. It'd have been way easier to go, she's got leukemia because people would have known what we were going through because what we felt was she had leukemia. Kalina stayed up all night trying to figure out what was, gonna, what was gonna be happening, what were our options going to be. They said there's no cure when you look online. And then there was one place she found that said, we've cured 300 people. Tens of thousands of people get it every year. They call it the suicide disease. While Maddie was at treatment, one of the other patients killed themselves when they were there. Because she got a pain drop and the pain came back the next day and she killed herself. And, she was, and that gal was a mom. And the, so nasty thing. And then we got to the treatment center pretty quick after Maddie had been diagnosed. And there's all these other kids and young girls in there in wheelchairs with limbs that were huge. It swelled up they were on, and they were in feeding tubes. And, but why was their story different than Maddie's is their story was different than Maddie's because they said, our town has been raising money for the last two years so we could come here. So they took two years to get there and they were like, and we only have enough for two months. So they all had these websites and they're sharing their stories because they're trying to get more donations to be able to stay. So they're showing up after two years of having the disease, knowing that's their solution with no money, their town's raising money for them. And then they don't have enough to get there because the unfortunate thing about the medical system is it's cash only at the place that does miracles. She lived there, she stayed there for six months. Our family was apart for six months as we were doing it, it was incredibly hard. We are still traumatized from it. We're trying to get through it. Like we're just now starting to get through that other side. And when we left there, she wasn't even cured all the way yet. So we spent about a half a million dollars in, in Arkansas for that. But maybe it was four, 400, we spent a lot of money. Uh, at the same time, I shut down one of my companies. I had a host take over my Rockstars podcast at the time. So the, and the real estate market started changing at the time. So having, again, one of those crazy fires where daughter was sick, plus we need to have our eye on the business, but we're like managing 
everybody's separate. So the happy ending to that story, it's not an ending, but where we're at today is then we were able to find a guy in Austin that's a specialist with the pain stuff, another cash only guy. When Maddie was first six, she was too serious of a deal to be able to, for him to be able to help. But by the time we got back to Austin, she could wear socks, she could wear shoes, she could eat again. So then he was able to help her get the rest of the way. Kalina had spent two months in California going to Disneyland, going on the beach, doing all these things that Maddie was like, I remember the first time we got to go back to Hawaii was that was when Maddie was gonna know she was better. Because the other part about CRPS is weird. If you touch their skin like this, it feels like getting stabbed with a knife. Cold water would make the whole body feel like it was on fire. So she couldn't, and then sand, touching sand with her feet. Like we're gonna go put our feet in the sand today. But if she did that, it made her whole body freak out. So I remember when we were in Hawaii, like March, February, March this year, and our kids are walking toward the beach. And me and Colleen are next to each other. And we're like, don't say anything. Don't do anything. And we're like holding hands, watching this moment. Because it's either going to be a moment of triumph or a moment of, hey, we're starting over. And it had been like a three-year journey at the time. So Maddie walks into the water, into the sand, and they keep going. So we're like, yeah. Okay. So that's a shitty story to share, but the idea of like, why do you want more? You don't know what you might need or why you might need it. But like my daughter's better because I owned five different businesses and because we had unlimited resources and because my wife didn't have a job and she could focus on figuring out how to get Maddie better and that they could move up to Arkansas with no deadline, right? Like my daughter is better because of the freedom we created with our business. So when people say like, why don't you retire now? is I don't know what I might need a billion dollars for. Literally. But I want to make sure I have it. The, there's more fun stuff with that story, right? We also want it for traveling the world. Part of our life with that has been cyclical. Sometimes I don't work much and we get to travel the world and have a lot of fun. And sometimes we don't. Right now we're in a period where they spent two months in California and I was home working. Because I'm, I'm working on a thing right now. And sometimes we need to remember like, why, are we, why more? Kalina's sometimes asking, why won't Aaron retire? Why are we still going? Why is he working instead of doing this? Because I want to make sure that I have what I need when, the, when I need it. And money has seemed to solve that. And more also provides the really fun stuff that we do because we don't know if today we're going to breathe our last breath. Right? Our NBA courtside seats, we have the best seats in the house. VIP experiences everywhere. I love, in May, I was in Vegas three out of the four weekends. So people say, how do you stay driven when you have enough? For me, it's simple. Because this, and maybe it's sad for you guys, uh, there will never be enough. There will never be enough because, again, I don't know what I might need it for. And that can make my family as sad as it can make them happy because they don't like that idea necessarily. But sometimes it's remembering the why of when we needed it. All right. So, what's the dream? Again, quit their job, travel. The real estate myths is get rich quick. Real estate myths is real estate is passive. Yeah. So real estate is not passive. There, there's some versions of that you can get to as you scale. So people would say, my green section of my org chart is now passive. That hour a week. And that is, that one is passive. That took a long time to build. And I still decided, let's say I, like, I wanted to make an extra $10,000 a month. I could just fire two of the people in the green org chart and I could work in that company. So passive is always a choice too of how much. Like at any time you can go, I could do their job instead of hiring them or I can hire them and my passive goes down or up uh, based on the result. And another big myth that I challenge people, especially when they're new and I hear some of the goals out there, I don't want to discourage people from goals, 
but if I don't buy a deal, I'm losing. So some people will say, I need to buy 10 doors. And they might buy a bad deal because their deadline to buy 10 doors was next month and they might have nine already. And they might say okay to something they shouldn't because they want to hit that number. So if you don't buy a deal, you're losing. Don't believe that. Don't fall for that, especially right now in today's market. Proper goals and expectations. So the quality, not quantity. I have 800 doors. And the, plus I have an apartment. Plus I have another, I've got a lot of doors. But I remember buying like 15 doors all next to each other for 10,000 bucks a piece. Worst investment I ever did, but it was really cool to say, I've got 15 doors, right? 10,000 bucks a piece. We owned those for four or five years. I sold those at the very absolute top of the market. I got super freaking lucky. Get rid of those. So it doesn't matter how many doors you have. What matters is income and ease of the income and how you do it. So don't get caught up in doors. Get caught up in how much income you want to make. I don't need to have 10 houses. I want to make $10,000 a month for my houses or $20,000 a month. When I say I have 800 doors, does it matter if they're million-dollar houses or $100,000 houses? So the, if they're all million-dollar houses, like I make a lot more money. It's a lot different life than if it's 100. So think more about what are you going to do with it. Don't fall into the Class C trap. So the, when I first got into buying that first apartment that I bought, I remember thinking, this is crazy. This is going to be like a 10 to 15% ROI. You're making $15,000 a month in rent. I'm going to buy this thing for $300,000. And the, so those class C, those lower class assets that usually when people first get into multifamily, they have to start there. It can get discouraging and difficult because, or that they could be like, people might want to go to that quicker because you go, Hey, it's a higher ROI. A class A is going to be a four cap or a five cap, but a class C is going to be a seven or eight. And I'm going to have the time to do this. There's a lot of value in that, but like in a class C, you're going to have to work a lot harder. But what I learned for that, like first apartment. It turned out to be great for me, but the reason I don't own it anymore is because when you're charging like five or 600 bucks a month in rent for those, like the cap rate looks amazing. But when you have to evict a tenant and they trash it, it costs four or 5,000 bucks to turn over that, turn over that apartment. It's the same for a class A that where they pay $4,000 a month. So if somebody pays $4,000 a month and they trash it and they leave, it's 4,000 bucks to do the turnover. So on class C, whenever something goes wrong, you're losing nine or 10 months of rent. And in class A, you're losing one. When an air conditioner would go out in a class C, 4,000 bucks for a new air conditioning system, that's 10 months of rent before you get it back. We were at a point where we were having people move units. Don't put a $4,000 unit in there. We can't afford it. Move the guy next door where we still have an AC unit. And we'll mark that one as not rentable, especially when you have 40 of the 60 operated. I put the thing in there. I lost two tenants in one day. I had one tenant shoot and kill another tenant right in front of the apartment complex on camera in front of everybody. That's not a, so I say don't buy assets if you're not going to be proud to drive by and say I own that. Like the apartment complex I own up in McGregor right now, it's a class A. I love driving through there and going, this is mine. You go into all of them and they're like granite countertops and stainless appliances. It is a high end, really cool thing that I can be proud of and I can drive my mom through the neighborhood. I remember when I drove my mom through the neighborhood of the $10,000 houses I bought, she did not think it was as cool as I did. And we also did not get out of the car. All right, so don't necessarily follow along with what everybody's doing. Be careful when switching asset types. I'm not doing well on my storage unit up in Michigan right now. The, that was like, hey, I wanted to be more of a family office. I want to invest in other people that are doing it. 
but it's not my wheelhouse, not my expertise. So the so there's two. So as you do it, so like what Joe and Ben talk about is that's one way you can go from here to here really quickly. And I believe in that. And if that's your story, I think that's your story. Make sure you use experts and you study and you really know what you're doing because that hasn't worked for my story. What it worked for me was singles of something that I really knew, but trying to do that at scale. If single family is what, my, what I'm perfect at, how many single families can I do? If fourplexes are what you're good at, how many fourplexes can you do? So the, for me, I think that it's, you gotta be careful when you're switching asset classes. It could be that opportunity for something next. The great thing about those asset classes is it gets rid of all of your tax base. So there are some advantages to it. That's also why I like it. But, the, but just as you're jumping into something new, do the same amount of homework that you would have done that very first time you invested 5,000 bucks in something. Don't fall in love with a deal. The best deals I ever did were the ones I walked away from. The most money I ever made on a deal was saying, I'm not actually gonna buy that. There was a, we were investing in these oil a few years ago. Me and one of my partners, we'd hired a guy that was good at the oil business. He wanted to be in our world and he was, and big oil companies would hire him to go find new places. And we said, we wanna invest in oil. We wanna buy some oil wells. We wanna buy some oil you know, developments. And so he got a couple of them in escrow. And so then during that process, we spent like $80,000. Like we didn't, we didn't know about oil. It's a lot like land development. You spend $80,000 on your due diligence to decide if you're going to buy it or not. Now, when you're in that point, like when you're all the way through, you're like, hey, I've already invested 80,000 in this. Is this a good deal or not? And it was really hard for us, but we got to a point where we said, we're not doing that deal. And we lost 80 grand on it. it. Wasn't our wheelhouse. It was something new. Even though we had found an expert, we probably should have stayed away from it. But it was amazing that we said no to that deal because the, it wasn't soon after that oil became worth nothing and the barrel, that the, oil, the, the barrel that the oil was in was worth more than the actual barrels of oil. And so we would have lost probably a few million dollars in a pretty short period of time if we'd have gone through it the rest of the way. So the best deals I ever did were not doing them. The other side of that is all the best deals that I actually made a profitable return on. I knew the whole time they were amazing deals. I knew that I never had to question it. I would make, I'd go, hey, my max bid is $150,000 and I got it for 130. We'd gotten inside and we knew it was gonna sell because a bunch of other stuff had sold. So the best deals that happen, you aren't gonna have to doubt, could this be or not? Now, mind you, I've had deals where I took a risk. I've had deals where I'm like, I don't know where this is gonna go. I'm gonna make a bet and do it, right? And I've had plenty that worked out, right? We had six weeks of savings and we bought a house on that last day. So you can take risk and still be successful but the only time I lost money is when I took risk. And there were plenty of deals that I bought that I made a lot of money on that there was no risk ever. There was no risk ever in the transaction. It felt 100% amazing the whole time. And as the market changes too. So as you guys are looking into other things too, could be mindset. Am I having a mindset issue where I just where I should be able to handle this and I don't believe it? Or is it more like it's actually like in my gut and I should be walking away from this? So just be careful as you're doing those. And just know that again, the ones that I made the most money on, I knew the whole time they were home runs the whole time. Like the big apartment complex that I have, that I have in McGregor. I got an escrow for 9 million and by the time we closed it appraised for 12, right? New construction, got a $4 million tax write-off. That whole time, like I knew it was amazing. All right, passive income is a myth. Truly passive means you're leaving a lot of money on the table. So there's a time to scale to passive but make sure it financially makes sense. I'm gonna try to jump through some of these next ones and see if we just have some more questions and I can jump back in. Horizontal versus vertical versus horizontal. Know your worth with stuff. If you make $200,000 a year, you make 100 bucks an hour. If you make $100,000 a year, you make 50 bucks an hour. 
and a lot of you guys are high earners. A lot of you guys have really high W-2s. So your time is worth 100, 200, 300 bucks an hour. So when you're deciding, are you going to hire a property manager for something or not? Are you going to hire that person? Are you going to scale as you guys are trying? Everybody, when you start to build your business, there's parts that suck. You go, I just need to hire somebody to do that. I hate turning utilities off and on. I need to hire somebody to do that, right? So the, but along the way, you have to think, how much am I paying for that? And how much am I getting earned? How much am I earning to do that? So if taking an hour to turn on utilities costs you $500, then yeah, paying somebody a few hundred dollars to do it may be what you need. So do you have a high paying gig or long-term freedom? And I would say, try to be patient as you're growing that. Like cost of a property manager, right? So I've got, you rent it for 1500 per month. They're going to charge you 75 bucks. They're going to, if they get late fees, they keep it. You don't get it, right? The construction management fees, bad decision costs because non-aligned incentives. At that apartment complex I had that was the class C, whenever the AC would go out, my property manager would just spend four or $5,000 just to replace the unit. Because he's, hey, he doesn't want to deal with it anymore. That was simple for him. If he could replace all the units, his life would be easier. I'm like, no, move them next door. Like do something else or do the repair. We didn't have aligned incentives. So the so rent of 1,500 bucks, a good case, your scenario, a good case on that is you're going to make 135 bucks a month profit on a rental, right? Half your return is the property management fee. So if you want to be passive, you've got a property manager. But if you're trying to replace income because you're trying to leave your W-2, maybe you have to be your own property manager. So how much time does it take you? How much time do you have? What are your goals? Replacing income quickly or slowly. So, the, so, if, you've got extra, so if you've got extra time to do this stuff, are you going to be your own PM or not? And again, it has to do with the goals. Are you ready to travel the world? Or are you like, hey, I'm making $20,000 a month in my W-2. How do I replace that with something I love? And I love real estate. And the benefit about being your own property manager for a while is then you get to learn stuff. I know how to do all the construction on projects whenever I have somebody do it. There's Airbnb examples. Of, so this is our, this is our uh, midterm rental up in Arkansas right now. This is the house we bought for my daughter to live in. Now other patients at Spiro stay in there with us. So the, it's not horizontal all the way, but I probably make $400 an hour by having that midterm rental. We require 30-day stays as a minimum. So I have to do interaction with people but I probably make $400 per hour when I'm doing it. So we don't outsource that part, right? Because that's a good enough amount to go, okay, like I'd rather spend an hour doing it and make 400 bucks than spend it on something else. I had an old Airbnb that was you know, on a golf course community up in, up in Clown Falls, Oregon. Loved the property, but the, it would make about 200 bucks a month. But it was a pain. Calls and texts all the time. People were coming in and out. The margin was so slow. So on that one, it was like a $50 an hour earnings. I was like, cool, sold that one. We got, rid of, we got rid of that one because even though like it was making money, it was a door, but those two doors are different. This door is much better than that door. And sometimes you have to determine that based on what you're worth, how you're scaling, what you want your business to look like. Somebody said, what are three things I do to get results like time management in real estate projects? So that was one of the questions that you guys came up with. So I love getting up early. So if you guys follow me on Instagram, if you don't follow me on Instagram, I share so much stuff on there. I want to be able to get to know you guys and have more conversations. And so please do. But I'll share on there a lot of what I'm planning for the day. So I get up super early. When I'm at my best, I start with a workout and sauna and meditation. I'm not at my best right now. I've had a rough couple months. But as I, but I know this, but I know the formula to get back to my best. And so like the, so we talk about that a lot. Like whenever we're struggling with stuff, we know what we're supposed to do to get out of it. But when I'm doing my best, I'm getting up early. 
I'm doing my Tim Ferriss stuff in the morning where I'm going to reply to emails between four and five in the morning when everybody else is asleep because then I can get through 100 emails. I can get through 100 interactions of focus without somebody distracting me. And then time blocking. So I have an email. I have an email address for my software company. I have an email address for my home rock company. I have an email address for my individual assets. And so I'll time block and I'll log into one email for 20 minutes and I'll process through there and then I close it. I'll go into the other one. So also when I'm time blocking, I'm time blocking between businesses. Weekly production meetings with teams is a big thing. And during that production meeting, I try to have all hands on deck, all staff people available and try to talk about everything. And sometimes people are frustrated because they're like, I shouldn't have to be there. I'm only one little part of it. But at certain times during those conversations, like the guy over here that's just an on-site construction guy remembers like, no, remember when we changed the key on that one? That was the problem over there. So we do a, a one-day production meeting every week. And then I have all of my employees do start of day and end of day emails where I review their start of day. Like, here's my plan for the day. And the only interaction I'll try to do with them is, hey, this is more important than that. So if you can't get all 10 of these things done today, do that one. So that's the way that I, I get the stuff managed. And right now I go back and forth with doing the construction myself, like doing the management myself or hiring people to do it. The, and that's, I need more, like I'm, I need more money right now. So I'm being more involved than I normally would on stuff. So finding off-market properties and getting creative with lending was one of the questions of how people are doing that. So I haven't gotten, done much creative lending stuff yet. So I know the opportunities are out there. There's even, a, a, there's a big property in Austin right now that I was looking at that was, I made a post on it. The guy bought it for 3.2 million. Now he's trying to sell it for 2.7. I saw that he's got a $2.4 million loan on it and he's locked in at 4%. So that's going to be like, if I try to go buy that one, like I could pay way more if it's a 4% loan than if it's a 7 or 8% loan on that. So that might be one that I try to do. But when it comes to finding off market, like that's what my whole business is based around. So we started with foreclosure leads, like those are off market. We started buying them on the courthouse steps. Now we try to buy them before. So all the software that we've built is about how you go reach out to those people ahead of time. So like, Offline, I've got like a course that's like a six or seven hour course. Kevin was there at my office when we filmed it. You can ask him if it was worth it. Or we talk about getting stuff offline. My software prop hawk is all built on that. But I think that's like the secret is off-market properties. And there it's about finding people. So right now, the only people that are going to sell are people that need to sell. Most people have a really good interest rate. They're not going to sell because they're not going to get the price that they want. And they're just going to wait. So the only people that are going to sell are highly motivated and they're highly motivated by things outside their control. So our software is all based on trying to tell people that. These people got a divorce. These people, their kids have have grown up and they're moving into college so they need to downsize. These people are in foreclosure. Some of my favorite ones are like utility liens where people stop mowing their lawn. Before they stop making their mortgage payment, they usually stop caring about the house. So you can see like, all right, they stopped mowing their lawn. They're going to be in foreclosure six months from now. So there's lots of leads for that. And then the best outreach is calling, texting, emailing, knocking on the door and doing a bunch of it. So like we, we tell people like buy our lead propeller software, build a website that says you buy houses that has all these frequently asked questions, do sticky notes, do letters, knock on doors, call, text, everything, because everybody is reaching out to these people. And so the, and every time, if you guys ever had an experience where someone calls you and they're so persistent, you like want to buy from them because you like respect the game. But you're like, man, like you were the one that actually cared. You were the one that kept going. When I first bought my Spurs tickets, am I okay on time? Are we going? I think we got. All right. The, when I first got my Spurs tickets, the guy called me and he was a sales guy. And he's like, hey, Aaron, the, I'm so-and-so with the Spurs. The thought you might be interested in coming to, to tour our facility down here. We're releasing our front row tickets for next year. We even have a helicopter pad uh, there now. So the flight from Austin pretty, can be pretty quick. 
And I go, how did you find me? And he goes, on your LinkedIn, you're a software guy uh, in Austin, you own a software company. We see that you used to live in Sacramento and you had some interest and you follow the Sacramento Kings out there. And we know that for the Golden State Warriors, the 70% of their season ticket holders drive over two and a half hours to get to the game. So we thought maybe you would be interested in coming down to the Spurs. And I was like, all right. The, and I'm like, who does this guy think he is? He says we have a helicopter pad as one of the opening things. That's great for the ego. You're probably the type of guy to have your own helicopter. If you have your own helicopter, we can also, you can park it down at the Spurs stadium when you come down. So the, so I bought from him because I respected the game. I was very impressed with how he found me, how he, he was right. Like I had almost got the season tickets at Kings year prior. So he had done all of his homework, but the big reason I decided, but I'd never gone to a Spurs game. I didn't like the Spurs. It didn't mean anything to me at the time, but I did it because like I respected the game. So when you're trying to find off-market properties, the harder you work, people will respect the game. So the, how to grow an investor base when you have no experience or no track record. So when I first did that in foreclosures, the, before I was able to get my dad to invest in me, I actually did what I called dry runs where I did my business plan. I drove the houses. I did title. I showed up with my max bid. I went to auction and I said, I would have bought these three today. And we did that a bunch and we did it a bunch. And we said, here's what would have happened. But then I think the best way is you say, I'll do it for free. Every time you ever do any structure or investment anywhere, people will disagree with me on this, but we have done deals where we had management fees. We've done waterfall structures. We've done all sorts of different things. The only thing we do now is I only get paid when investors get paid, period. There's no fees. There's no anything. That's the only way to truly have aligned incentives. If you've got a management fee for raising money that gets paid no matter what before returns, then you're incentivized to raise money, not deliver returns. And the and property managers is the same way. So the best way, and it's also the best way to not get sued when the market changes. Because right now, a bunch of syndicators from two or three years ago are going to start getting sued. Because the market's changed and people are going to go, wait, you got paid $300,000 in fees and we lost our money. When everyone's making huge returns, no one cares. Yes, you can have a three points if I'm still making 20% a year. But as soon as they start making less. So if you're going to raise any fund ever... It's profit splits only. I only get paid if they get paid. People say, what about operations? What about things like that? If there's somebody that works for the fund, you can just pay, their salary can get paid out of the fund before the profit split. That person is making a salary, but I don't take a salary. As the owner, I only get paid when my investors get paid. We share expenses equally on what it costs to run the fund, but it's not, but it's open book expenses. I think that's the best way to do everything when you're raising. It's an easier way to get people on. You get paid when they get paid. And if you have to convince them at the beginning, you might have to do a couple for free or really show them the examples. The main thing to watching out for when buying a house that's been flipped, I don't buy properties that have been flipped as assets. The, I think that they're, in general, I don't think there's necessarily something wrong with it. The, when we flip houses, we do a really good job flipping the houses. But for long-term assets, I like to choose houses that were built recently. I don't want to fall into the Class C deal Again, of like it's a higher return, but it's an older property. I want newer stuff that's going to make it easier. Because again, I think your return is more true on a newer asset. So sorry, I don't have a good answer for that. How do you keep your family at the center while scaling? I was going to let Kalina answer that, but she's gone. The, the reality of that is I don't do a great job at that all the time. That's seasonal too, right? So I think that when people see like on social media and everything else, they go, wow, he's got it all together. It's a perfect balance. They're out doing this. So the, so it's, yeah, how do you keep your family at the center while scaling? I don't do a great job at that right now. I do a great job at it seasonally. When you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to another, no matter what you do.
so the so if I'm if I'm saying now it was a talk we had on the King's Table podcast recently. Can you have a perfect family life and build a billion dollar company? No. You can't. People say I want to have it all. You can't. You're always going to be making a choice. If family is what you focus on 100% of your time, no matter what, which is great, you could have a good business. You could have a great business. It will never be as big as it could have been. But if you're going to focus on your business 100% of the time, you could have a good family relationship. You could even have a great family relationship, but it'll never be as great as it could have been. So balance is what you decide you want it to be. And so far, our best balance is seasonal. I've had years I can be really proud that we look back and go, wow, that year we spent three weeks out of every month traveling together and Aaron would just go to, the only time I would work is when I'd fly out to Texas. And the rest of the month, two in the afternoon, we'd be all swimming in the, in the pool together. And I remember a few of those moments really distinctly, this is the dream. It's two o'clock and we're swimming and I don't have to work for another three weeks. And then there's other times like January, 2021, where I couldn't breathe, I couldn't see straight, I couldn't do anything working around the clock. And every day I was like trying to, because I had so many closings too. I'm like calling people the morning of, hey, can you loan me $300,000? I'll pay back 310 tomorrow. Like I, it was just scrambling to get things done. Didn't have time to know up from down. Could you have anything to add to that? I mean, you hate getting put on the spot, but like the, like, how do we, like, how do you feel? That, how do you feel about the balance or are there secrets for people or is it just unrealistic? Like, how do you? So you, and if you're married and your marriage doesn't watch you, and I think all you can do is communicate your own. And you're going to be in different seasons depending on what your spouse does. I know some of your spouse works long enough done, so when you don't have spouses yet, they are more like take a spouse. And if you're that, it is really about being very clear about what your life is. Because your life is not a normal life. It's not a normal So your spouse, whether existing or non-existing, Needs to know what they're saying. Like, because it is, because it is, it is a one more close to And it's exhilarating and it's terrifying. All right. Like being a spouse of an entrepreneur has moments of awesomeness and moments where it's horrible. The reality is, for years, I was ready to start my own company. And I would tell Kalina, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go start this company. I'm going to quit my job and start this company. And she grew up with a firefighter and teacher for parents. And she said, and she's, uh-huh. or sorry, police officer and teacher, police officer and teacher. And she said, do not quit your job. No, that is not okay. Like you are not supposed to be great. You are not supposed to do something like that. You're supposed to get a job and be happy and pay your bills and put into retirement. And so when did she get on board with us starting our own business? Kind of when we didn't have a choice anymore. When we had done it for long enough, like I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur from like the beginning. And for five years, like I still want to do this. But it, when did we get on board with it together? When our daughter was, was like it, at the, in the NICU and we're like, okay, we did it that way for a long time and it did not work. It's time to actually go try to do something different. But having a spouse that's on board with the fact that like every entrepreneur, every true entrepreneur is like super bipolar, super ADD, can get super manic at different times. So there's times when you can use it for good where it's probably amazing to be my spouse and there's times when it is not fun to be my spouse. Another question was when to pivot, when to outsource, when to hire a PM. Uh, I'm pivoting a lot right now with, with my business. And the you talked about like yesterday, you asked about geography switches. So I was in Sacramento when the foreclosure crisis happened. I was in a great place. 
Like the reason when I started in Sacramento, there was two or three people at auction. When I got put out of business, there was hundreds. When I first started flying to Texas, it was because Texas was a great market and there was no competition there at all. So I believe in like changing markets all the time based on where the opportunity is. And we're even relooking at it right now. Like I don't plan on moving away from Texas, but I am. But the Texas market is rough right now. But there are some markets in the country that are great right now. So I was watching the, the Jeff Bezos like pseudo documentary and, his, and he's getting ready to start his business. And he's very early on. It's a fa fascinating thing to watch. And he tells his wife, okay, so I know where we're going to start the company. And he lives somewhere in the middle of the U.S. But he has this idea. And he goes, we're going to Seattle, Washington because the cost of living is low. The tax strategies, tax structures for businesses is great. There's a port nearby. And we can hire for the like cost of living and then salaries, we'll be able to pay less than salaries. So he had looked at everywhere in the world and he had said he was going to measure this and this. Where should I go uh, start my headquarters? And he did that at the beginning. Most people don't do business like that. Most people like start and then they go the other way. But I thought it was fascinating. But that's what I'm doing when I'm looking at real estate right now is I'm saying where are months of inventory lowest? Where do I think prices have the most opportunity to go up because they've gone down? Where will there be the types of assets that I want to buy? Are there foreclosures? Are there off-market properties? Because it doesn't matter if I know how to buy foreclosures. If it's a great market, there's no foreclosures. So right now I'm searching for that perfect market again to go, hey, if I have to do that business, like Texas was that perfect one. So like when to pivot or not is a tough one that you'll have to discover. When I got put out of business in 2012, I should have pivoted much faster. But I think you can ask yourself, am I not pivoting because of, is it like pride or is it necessity or fear as you're looking at it? Because if you can actually dig into the reason you're considering it, it should answer itself. Lots of options in real estate. You want to find out your specialty and figure out what to spend your time on. But try to research all of them and go, hey, I love this. I love foreclosures. I love beat up houses. I love houses that are like half burned down. I love the excitement of that. I also love the excitement of sometimes opening the door to foreclosures and they're perfect. And they get put on the market. I've done a great job at managing risk with that. So I know what I like the most. Now, I also recently like apartments and stuff because apart, class A apartments are very easy and you get really good tax uh, benefits from it. But figure out what you love. There's a lot of different options out there because in order to be like hit that top triangle that, that we were talking about last night is you've got to know everything about something so much to where the answer is like secondary and you don't realize that you are the expert, the, the best expert in the world on it. That's only going to happen if you love something. Necessity won't get you to that level. I can make money doing a lot of things. Kalina was a great real estate agent, but she, she made a lot of money doing it, but she hated it. Like you, people do jobs that you guys hate. Right? And you can do it for a certain amount of time, but you'll never be like the best in the world at it if you don't love something. Quick forecasting stuff. So this is like a months of inventory chart. So the best thing I want to, to uh, explain with this is like real estate itself is local, it is geography based. And so the thing you should be thinking about, so three different markets here, Austin, Texas is in green, Washington, DC is in yellow, Sacramento is in blue, Washington, DC on the far east side of the world and Sacramento on the far west, they're performing about the same right now. They're down to one month of inventory in real estate, which means that is a seller's market which anything that they're putting on the market is selling fast and easy. In Austin right now, that's saying four months of inventory, but I think that we're still really six or seven months of inventory. So that means I've got 12 houses on the market right now. I have an offer on one. We're priced like 40 to $50,000 below comps on them and not getting any showings. What does seven months of inventory tell you? If it takes you seven months to sell a house, that's average. 
that's normal. Like if it's priced right. And so like when we're going to buy a property though, we are not counting on seven months of interest, right? That's your whole profit on something or more. So the, so when you decide uh, if you're going to be in flips or in midterm rentals or short-term rentals, you should be really digging in to the data because the forecasting is there are some markets where prices are still going down this year. There's gonna be some markets where prices are going up. There's gonna be some industries that are doing better than others when it comes to like rules on Airbnbs and things like that. So think like Jeff Bezos did and before you enter a market or enter an industry or decide to change, go somewhere else, what is all the things I could think about that could affect this place? Because some people are like, oh, they're good jobs, they're good schools. Yeah, but what else? My apartment complex is right next to a SpaceX facility, right? Which means sometimes it shakes when they're testing the rockets, but it also means that's gonna be blowing up. There's gonna be more and more people moving to that town. You can see the same thing with like median prices for, so Washington, Austin, and Sacramento, they all peaked April, 2022. They've all had big declines. But like Washington is in much better shape than Austin. So again, where that market is. But they talk about like when you want to reinvest in a market, like in the stock market, like if you're doing long-term holds, people are like, should I buy houses right now for long-term holds? They say you want to buy in the bottom third of a correction. We never know if you're truly at the bottom or not. But like in Sacramento, this price would be the bottom third. If this is the peak and this is the trough, if you bought here or you bought here for a five-year hold, you're in great shape. You're buying at that bottom third. So Austin is in that bottom third right now, as long as we're not still going down, right? So, so right now we're about to determine is Austin in the bottom third where it's time to now go buy $30 million worth of real estate because in seven years, it's gonna be back up to the peak numbers. Sacramento, you've missed the bottom third. Doesn't mean you can't invest in there, but it's like good flipping market now, not necessarily good buy and hold market. So there's lots of data to, to analyze stuff as you're going into real estate. And I think you should be looking at all those. Like also what's coming up next, like big foreclosures in commercial and multifamily and storage. The, we've got a bunch of Walmarts got foreclosed on a few months ago in, in Dallas. That's wild, right? Walmart, big box store getting foreclosed on. Somebody that would have bought that. Re like one of you guys would have totally invest. I would have totally bought a commercial building if Walmart's the tenant thinking they will never stop paying their bills. It's Walmart. They did. And four of them got foreclosed on. And so the owner, so like the owners of that Walmart stopped paying their bill. You would think that if Walmart was your tenant, you'd be a home run. And Walmart said, we don't want to be there anymore. And we don't have corporate guarantees on stuff because we were Walmart. Nobody made us put corporate guarantees on stuff. They thought we wouldn't go anywhere. Walmart walked away. So instead of honoring their lease commitments, $784 million multifamily building getting foreclosed on. Now, there's a lot of office buildings like this. This was $140 million or $384 million worth of debt. JCPenney headquarters in Dallas got foreclosed on recently. Giant complex. JCPenney wasn't there anymore. Nobody else needs a $384 million facility. That's probably worth 50 or 60 million bucks now and it's still empty. There's no new tenants coming in for that one. Single family affordability. I think affordability is still just like some random predictions that could help you in your journeys. I think affordability is getting tougher. And it's, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. Interest rates, I don't think the Fed is going to lower rates until 2025 at this point. I think it's still going to go up a couple more times. I study Fed rates and, hist and, hi and historical trends more than anything else in the world. And the guys that I talked to about are the guys that experienced the 80s. And the guys that run the Fed now idolize the Fed from the 80s. 
They talk about them all the time as they were the ones that saved the world. And so they're the ones that they're going to be acting like. The crazy part is the data that they're using says the economy is actually fine and we're getting a soft landing. But it's very, there's some industries that are fine and other industries that aren't. Real estate gets hit harder. Cars are getting hit harder. There's certain industries where those rates make a big difference. Multifamily office, commercial and storage. I'll share just a quick story with that talks about why it matters or where that big opportunity is if you're going to be buying something today. So cap rates were 5% like two years ago. So everybody know what a cap rate is? So a, a cap rate, like the way that they do commercial, I do get to draw something. Like, this was my drawing after yesterday. You start with one house and then you get more. All right, so that's my life, that, that's my life in a nutshell. The, you just keep, you keep doing the same thing and you get more. But the, the very quick thing is you can say, if you make $500,000 a year on a property, so that's your profit. So a five cap, when commercial appraisals said, hey, five cap is normal, which really means if somebody has a million dollars, they should be able to make 5% on their money. Fed rates were low. And so it's, yeah, if I can make 5% on my money, that's great. I can't think of anywhere else I can make 5% on my money. I'll buy an apartment. So now it's worth $10 million. Appraiser says 5% return is reasonable. So that's what we're going to do. So everybody bought these properties two years ago, $10 million. What, what sort of a loan would they get for a $10 million property? The, the, if you get like a low interest rate, like 5%, but you're going to be like an $8 million loan, let's say. That's your loan amount. They put $2 million down. They got a loan for $8 million. All right? That's common a couple of years ago. Now, you can get a savings account and get paid 6.5% on it. You can put a million dollars in a bank and make a 6.5% return. So what do commercial appraisals say? They say 5% isn't a reasonable return anymore. You need to make at least 7% on your money to invest in some sort of a risky asset, especially if Walmart's getting foreclosed on. So now we're going to make a 7% return. So 500000 in profit at a 7 cap. If we're going to do the quick math, the, that's going to be around 7 mil now. Because 7 mil times 7% is 490000 So same apartment complex, two years later, nothing wrong with it. Same appliances. Rents are still the same. Profit is still the same. Appraiser comes in today, says, cool, it's worth 7 million bucks. Tons and tons of people two years ago were buying this apartment complex saying, we're going to do a value add. We're going to build, we're going to build something into it. We're going to sell it for more. Let's say they change their profit to 600,000. Sweet. You change it to $600,000. You did your value add. What's that appraised for? 8 million bucks. So now when they go to refi, lender says, cool, we'll give you a loan on that. It's worth 8 million. We'll give you 80% loan. We'll give you a $6.4 million loan on that. We owe 8 million right now. Lender says, cool, just give us another 1.6 and we'll refinance you. And it's a balloon. And it's due in 30 days. And so people aren't able to do it. So we're getting calls all the time from people that say, we're getting foreclosed on next month. Can you buy it? We'll give it to you for our debt. And so and essentially, like I could buy it for 8 million if I had stuff ready, if I had lenders ready. So that's going to be your big opportunity in multifamily right now. But again, if it goes from a five to a seven, it's really only worth seven and they owe eight. So most of the ones that people are bringing us are not worth what they were. So we're going to see tons of those multifamily and commercial foreclosures just because of cap rates. Operators didn't do anything wrong. They like made a bet and it went wrong. And like I could have made the same bet. And so like, it's not like judging or anything else. There's just people that did a perfect job on something 
if you are going to buy a multifamily property or a commercial property or an office property, make sure you're paying 30% less than it sold for two years ago. Because all commercial assets are worth 30% less than they were two years ago. No matter what. Like you show me whatever asset you've got, like the, I guarantee that it is not worth more than it was two years ago. And it's just because of commercial cap rates. That's outside of everybody's control. It's controlled all by the Fed. Fed's not going to change anything until 2025. So cap rates won't get back down like under seven for two, three years. Why is that a huge opportunity? Because if you buy it for seven and then cap rates go from seven to six, you add a million dollars. So the huge opportunity to be made when you're buying right now. Big opportunity in commercial office, multifamily, as long as you're buying it right. Commercial and office is still going to take a bigger hit. I would say on office leases and things like that, we're going month to month on all of our leases now. We were able to negotiate our, our lease down a lot with our landlord and before they were very aggressive with us. And, and I think, and the reason we're doing month to month is because we think it's going to be cheaper in six months to get a place. Geography, where should you be investing? If you're thinking, just know like the market is different everywhere. So start to figure out some of those stats to do research on. What else can you do in this time? Get in your reps, practice and build out the systems that you need. Write a bunch of offers. Don't get caught up with needing to get one accepted. Like just do your comps, do your reps. My best deals, I knew the whole time they were great. I never had to wonder if I should do it or not. If you have to question it, if I have to question it right now, I won't do it because the market's different. I bought some last year that were like on that edge and I still have them. I'm getting hurt on them. And I've flipped thousands of houses and I still lose money on them. I think I'll just click through the rest of these and probably skip them. Like I started with spreadsheets. Now I've got software that I use. However you go through this, foreclosures are really funny and interesting. There's just like pictures of houses that get, that one on the, on the left there, there was a house on the lot a month before auction. The day of auction, there was no house on the lot. So that's like, the, that's like the fear of the business, but that's also why there's opportunity in it. Not everybody does it. So if you follow processes for it, I've got, I've got courses. That's an example of an auction. I've got foreclosure courses and stuff like that. I've got a mastermind that I'm doing uh, at the end of this month in Austin that's just for experienced investors. That's like the thing that I'm getting excited about now is trying to help people, getting people together that are really good, that want to go to that next level. Like you guys have already joined a mastermind. That's the big part of the step that even we talked about last night. I know that when I joined GoBundance, I also got to join GoBundance at the perfect time when I found that new opportunity again. So not only did I have all that knowledge from before, but now I had people that I could say that I could do life with. So I remember so much in our life, I couldn't tell people at our kids' school, hey, I lost a million dollars last year. Or hey, I made it, or, or I bought this apartment complex, I'm gonna make $300,000 on it. Every conversation I had when people asked me what I did, I had to downplay it. I had to, oh, I, I do real estate. But I couldn't explain at what level. And so when I first got to go into a mastermind and say, this is what I'm doing, like what yesterday when Brian says check in, he's like, celebrate your wins. What do you guys do? So the cool thing about getting with like-minded people is you get to, you get to be who you are. I think we got another 10, 15 minutes questions if people want questions. Uh, all right. And guys, also remember when we're doing all of this, like use this as a case study and as an example, because just recently I was living four years in the basement of my house hacks. So it's, you have to make those shifts to be able to go from where you were like a year ago or for the last four or five years to be able to move to that new market. Leave where you currently are to be like where the new people are. Because Aaron and Kalina have done that multiple times. I had to do that too. So now I'm down the street from them. This is who I hang out with. And we go wake surfing. We hang out. We play. We go do electric shuffle while Kalina's front row at Taylor Swift. And, it, it's, and it's different conversations. And all of you are right here in Costa Rica to have different conversations. So I'd invite you when you go home. There's going to be some of you where you're like, 
whoa, this gap is widened now between some of your friends, some of your, especially coworkers. So remember, when that happens and you feel that, which you will, it's not if, it's when, lean into this. Lean into your pods, lean into your people, and you'll be okay. Hey, real quick, if you're still listening to today's episode, I'm assuming you got value from it, so I need your help specifically. My two-year vision with this show is to help over 1 million people do what they want, when they want, with who they want, and I can only do that with your help. There are two main ways that a podcast grows. One is through ratings and reviews, and the other is word of mouth. If you could please leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as send this to one or two friends that you think would get value from it, we can reach the people that we're looking to reach. Thanks in advance. Talk tomorrow.